few years ago, um, I went through a little patch where I had to do something quite extraordinary. I had to be the um, I had to be the part owner of Chelsea Football Club, which is a strange thing to say, and actually isn't quite true. It's simply that um, one of the um, the vice chairman of the football club died. He was killed in a tragic accident, quite a famous accident, in a helicopter uh, on the way home from an FA Cup match. And I knew him, and he and his family made me one of the two executors of his will. And he owned a huge amount of Chelsea Football Club. Um, and it was my job over the next few years to work to... Um, to work with all the companies that he owned and uh, make sure that all of the assets from what he owned got redistributed. It's the only time I've ever done a job like that and I learned an awful lot as I went along. But one of the pleasures of this, um, it was hard work, but one of the pleasures of this was that whilst I occupied that role um, in, uh, with a friend of mine whose name is Richard, um, in Chelsea, um, I used to sometimes get to go and see the matches. And I used to sit in the director's box and uh, I watched all sorts of great Chelsea matches because I was one of the people responsible for some of the shares of the company, a large amount of shares of the company. And what was fascinating about that was simply this. Uh, Chelsea was playing uh, in Europe. They were playing, you know, I remember watching them one night play Real Madrid etc., etc., and you've got these highly trained uh, players on the field, some of whom I got to know um, through, this, uh, through this period, but they're totally at their physical peak. They train all week, every single day. There's not an ounce of fat on any one of these players. They can out-sprint anyone you care to name except Usain Bolt. They, you know, they are flexible. They are always there. They are working hard. And what would happen, I watch, is this. At the end of the Chelsea ground, which is called the Shed, which is where um, all the supporters stand, there would be the supporters in their Chelsea shirts, you know, their blue Chelsea shirts, with their big bellies. And they'd stand there, they'd, they'd stand there, um, and, and sit there, and most often standing there out of their places, hurling abuse at these 11 players for not being able to score and pass it fast enough. You are... I won't repeat any of their language because none of it is particularly cat uh, compatible with an evening of reflection that Dan said we're having. <laughs> you are this and you are that and you can't do that. And every single player was at the end of their tongue. They lashed them. And it was amazing what, to watch... These guys who were all overweight, normally with their Chelsea shirts there, which didn't actually quite meet their trousers, you know, because their belly's sticking out. There they'd stand pontificating about all the mistakes that all the players were making, as though the manager was about to say, Oi, you in the front row, he's rubbish on the pitch. Why don't you come on and play a little bit better? Because I know we'd stay in Europe if you were on the pitch. It's a funny thing, and it led me one day to reflect on all this, and I saw in the newspaper article I was reading, a fantastic definition of football. It says football is 22,000 men 
in need of some exercise, watching 22 men in need of a rest. And that sums it up, doesn't it? 22,000 men who could do with a bit of exercise, watching and hurling abuse at, and massive advice at, 22 men on a pitch, who are doing their best and really do need a week off. Of course, it's the discipline, uh, the discipline of, of that constant training that makes you good at anything you do. Whether it's football, or cooking, or gardening, or reading, or maths, or law, or do you name it, you've got to keep working at it. The passage we just read uh, from the New Testament um, is all about Jesus who goes into the wilderness and we say he's tempted, Jesus' temptations. Uh, I think a much better way of looking at it is this. Of course, the passage is only called Jesus' temptations because we've chosen to call it that. Actually, if you look at what really happened, Jesus knows that he's got these years ahead of him serving God. And he withdraws to a desert and he tries to work out there what it actually means to serve God. And all these doubts fill his head. Why don't you throw yourself off a temple and prove you're the king? What about, don't waste your time with all this suffering stuff. Why don't you turn stones into bread? That will give you a route to fame and popularity and status. The followers you're look, really looking for. Satan says to him, why don't you bow down and worship me? Come my way, status, power, lust. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. So Jesus asks questions and he has doubts. That's what's going on. He's being tested and tried. In actual fact, at the end of the little passage that we just read, it says that Jesus was tempted. But then after that, Satan withdrew from him to the next time. And if you read through the uh, Gospels, you see there was always a next time, always another time. So that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus dies on the cross, he's praying, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, not this way, I can't bear it. What a struggle, I can't do this. And then he says, no, but not what I want, but what you want be done. And then hanging on the cross, he prays again, Father, Father, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me like this? And yet he knows that God is with him in this and He's working through what it means to be the Son of God. So in our doubts and our questions, we're following Jesus. The New Testament tells us, the book of Hebrews, that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. Every single way. So as we come to look at these questions, actually to question, to doubt, is not just part of faith. It's part of Jesus' life. And isn't it strange that we somehow manage to read the whole New Testament with such thick blinkers on that we don't even notice, even when we're reading the very words that tell us about Jesus' hesitations, Jesus' doubts, Jesus' questions, Jesus' temptations, even when we're reading about how he, his mind was filled with Well, shall I do this? Is this true? Shall I go another way? Is there a better way? We can somehow read all of that stuff and still we don't connect the dots and that it makes sense of our struggles in life. Does that make sense to you?
Christian faith isn't about certainty. The opposite of faith, um, the opposite of faith isn't certainty. It's not like I either have faith or I have certainty. If we got faith, doubt isn't built in ingredient. Always. Always. It's always there. So, some questions. You're all looking very serious. Tell me that made sense. Or oh, no, it doesn't make sense. You can ask me about anything I'm talking about as we go. Second thing to say before I answer these questions, actually. Therefore, if we have a church where you can't ask questions, if we have a church where there are some things that are off the agenda, you know, there are some questions you can't ask, then what kind of church do we have? If you're part of a community where there are some things that you really want to know about and you're not allowed to ask, then surely that community's become a cult. We have to be able to ask questions. Years ago, I read a piece, I think it was in the Times, it might have been the Guardian, I know the Times and the Guardian don't like to think themselves of being, as themselves of being synonymous, I can't remember where it was, but it was a huge piece that was written by somebody who'd left the Jehovah Witnesses. And he simply said, in the end, I had to leave, because, he said, I could no longer live a life where I wasn't allowed to ask questions. Instead, it's better to live a life where you don't have all the answers. The whole life is filled with questions, and it's filled with heartache as well. I got up one morning uh, this week, well, I didn't even get out of bed, actually. It was 6 o'clock in the morning, Radio 4 came on, like it always does. For me, So if I don't have to get up and get out before six, which I sometimes do, I wake up at six o'clock to Radio 4 News. And it was like a series of hammer blows. There's so many issues and problems in the world, one after the other. It becomes overwhelming. So, here, here is, here's some questions, in no particular order, from you. How can you combat the unbearable terror of mortality? It seems impossible to make the terror subside. It's a big question, isn't it? We are mortal. Our lives are limited. How do you do that? The truth is this. One of the things that happened to me this week is a real good friend of mine who's worked for Oasis for the last six or so months. Her name's Vicky. Um, uh, in fact, I just made some films with her, which haven't even yet been edited. Uh, we're going to use those films uh, in October in our congregations. Um, Vicky's just recorded these films with us, and about five weeks ago, she developed a cough. Last night, she died. Um, she developed perfectly fine. Um, we filmed... Uh, through the spring, worked on a project through the spring. She developed a cough. Four weeks ago, she was told that it was stage four lung cancer. Last night, she died. We are mortal. We are dust. All of us. The Bible says a lot about life beyond this one. It offers great deal of hope but it's only signposts to the future 
Some Christians like to tell you they know exactly what's going to happen to you after you die, one way or the other, depending on whether you've said a prayer or not. But the truth is, none of us know. And it seems incredibly presumptuous. It's simply that I have chosen to follow Jesus through my life, and I trust his words. But I think that all the Bible gives us is signposts into the future. It doesn't give us a picture postcard. There is no photograph of the future. We do not know what life beyond this is going to be like. We don't know what heaven's going to be like. We don't actually know what hell is or if hell's there. I assume that actually Jesus was talking in metaphors. He, he however, talked about living our lives for God and talked about the consequences of not, though he never actually consigned anyone to hell. He talked about impending judgment on us for choosing ways in life that are self-centered rather than other-centered. So I don't know about life beyond this life. I take lots of people's funerals. I have hope for life beyond this life. I really do. But I only have signposts or sketches, a bit like artist's impressions of that coffee shop. Whereas the emphasis of Jesus' teaching whilst it points us to the future, is very much directed to life before death rather than life after death. And it has a great deal to say about that. Yes, we are all mortal. What can remove that terror? I sometimes think, taking funerals as I do from time to time, that the greatest fear people have is not of death itself, but of of their life not having counted for anything. I think that that's why people try to buy themselves a slice of immortality. Lots of rich people, you know, they get their surname and they set up a foundation and they open a big building or something and stick their name on it. It's like a very elaborate thing like the Victorians used to do with they had a big headstone. But this is an even bigger headstone. It's almost like we can't bear that no one will remember us, that it didn't matter that we were here, that it didn't matter that we lived and I believe, that the go- I believe that the gospel of Jesus is all about your life mattering now. I believe that's the emphasis of what the New Testament's about. But do I have fears about death? I'd be stupid to tell you that I, that I don't. Actually, my fears aren't so much related to not, ex- not being here. I mean, before we were all born, we weren't here. And that seemed to go pretty okay, didn't it? <laughs> You know, the first few million years of life on earth, it seemed okay to us. It's the fear of the dying and the pain and the unknowingness of it rather than death. But I do believe that the Jesus that I trust in this life says, you can trust me on this. And that, of course, is a leap of faith which is filled with all sorts of doubts and questions as well. But in the end, whether it's Jesus we trust in or just Barclays Bank... We have to put our trust in something and there's always doubts that come with it. Um, you can ask more questions as I go. It's not a diatribe, so you know you can hurl in. You're all sat there. Um, shall, I, shall I read another one? Yeah, shall I do that? Here we go, the next one. It says, we get the Oasis take on Jesus, but he is still a barrier. Can't we choose the... Can't we change the name... And just be people of faith. 
can't we just change the name and be people of faith? Well, yeah, of course you can. But you've got to put your faith in something. Each one of us chooses what to believe in life. And in the end, all I can do is tell you that I, when I was 14, I chose to follow Jesus. Has it been tough sometimes? Yeah. Have I sometimes doubted? Yeah, I've told you that. Do I doubt? Ongoingly. Yeah. Do I have loads of questions that are unanswered? Yeah. Are there things that I don't understand? Yeah. But I would say this. Everybody has to put their faith in something in the end. That might hence my jibe about Barclays Bank. I'm not down on Barclays Bank. But you might put your, your, your faith in your youth. You could put your faith in your good looks. You could put your faith in your money in your bank. You could put your faith in your career. You can put faith in your friends and family. You can put faith in just being you. In the end, we've got, it's impossible to live without putting faith in something. And I would simply claim from where I've got to in life, and this is just for me, that following Jesus seems to make more sense than anything else. There's a verse in the New Testament. It's in... Um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, where he says, if for this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are most foolish of all people. We're most to be laughed at. If only for this life, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, and it's only in this life we've hope, uh, hoped in Jesus, we're just, we're just the laughing stock of everyone. Now, I understand why Paul said that in his context. I really do. Because he had been persecuted, he nearly lost his life, he'd been imprisoned, he'd been shipwrecked. He'd had a rough old life through following Christ. But actually, my view is this. For me, finding Christ gave me hope. It lifted my life out of a kind of meaningless drift into a journey of intention and purpose. I would say this, that living for Jesus now really makes a load of sense. In fact, I said to someone just at dinner I was at the other day, and they were talking to me about not believing in God, and I said to them, don't let that stop you from joining a church. If I were you, I'd join a church quick, because it's like the best sense of purpose and meaning and community and friendship you can get, unless you pay for it all, and then it's not worth it. So for me, is Jesus a barrier? Of course he's a barrier to some. It always will be. But actually, I've found, um, I was saying this morning, actually, to some people, that I'm just beginning to work on a project which really kicks off in September on peacemaking. And uh, I hope this is going to become a national project. Um, I managed to find a little bit of money to employ somebody from September. And uh, so we'll we, uh, tell you more about it in September. hope it's going to become national. I hope it's going to impact every school in the country. I'm hoping that a new GCSE is going to be launched in peacemaking and diplomacy and negotiation. I'm hoping that we're going to run a, some national awards about peacemakers. I'm hoping we're going to equip kids in every community to make peace. And it's a kind of anti-radicalization and anti-gang strategy. And I'm, I'm soon going to see um, uh, Secretary of State for Education about how we put it into practice for 2018. So in that, I'm working alongside some, already some Hindus and some Muslims and some Jews, Jewish leaders, and... Actually, I hugely respect them for who they are and what they bring, and I respect their faith. 
But it's the distinctiveness for me of following Jesus that pushes me into the conversations and the relationships in the first place. I'm doing all the talking and no, you're all sat there and you're all either thinking, what an idiot that guy is. Or, um, so what are you, uh, does what I say make sense? (laughs) Here's another question. Um, The book of James says, uh, more, says our actions speak louder than our works. Can you still be a Christian and not believe much? as long as you volunteer at the food bank. (laughs) Is it really necessary to believe in the virgin birth or penal substitution? Uh, Well, some of you will know what penal substitution is and some of you won't. The truth is, I mean, that fits back into this again, doesn't it? You can't believe what you don't believe. You know, the church in bygone eras used to put people on the rack to make them believe, actually stretch them till they were always coming apart, to pressurize them into belief. That's what the Inquisition was all about. We force you to believe in this life because it's better for you in the next life. You can't get people to believe what they don't believe, can you? About anything. Do you know, I, when I was a teenager, you know, I tried to get loads of girls to believe that I was the best-looking bloke in our community. It failed every single time. There was nothing I could do to convince them. In fact, the harder I tried, the worse it got. Have you noticed that? You can't get people to believe. They either believe or they don't believe. But the great thing about Jesus is he was always with people in their doubt. So one of the most famous stories about Jesus is the story about Jesus and Thomas, the disciple. Thomas, the disciple who didn't believe Jesus had risen from the dead. And even when he saw Jesus, he said, well, you know, I'm not quite sure. Jesus didn't ridicule him, didn't mock him. He allowed him to explore his doubts. In fact, if you know the story I'm talking about, when Thomas eventually saw Jesus, because he said, I don't believe he's risen from the dead, Jesus appeared to him and he still had the nails uh, holes in his hands from being crucified. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, put your finger into my hands and into my side. Touch it. Jesus was allowing to mix him to explore his doubts in a really tangible sense. Explore your doubts. It's an interesting thing uh, that if you go to India, I go, Oasis works in India, and I go there from time to time. The church in India was started by Thomas. So Jesus could have crushed Thomas by saying, you disbelieving good for nothing with all your doubts, you're not much use to me. But he didn't. He said, Explore your doubts. And Thomas went on to do extraordinary things with his life. I'm sure you've heard me say before, but you should explore it for yourself. And you can do this easily. There's a book by Mother Teresa, which is just her letters. It was published about five years ago, he says. Probably, it probably turned out to be eight years ago. But it's a book of, I think, 40 letters that Mother Teresa wrote to her best friends over the entire time that she worked in Calcutta, from the 1950s when she began until the time, the, the year she died at the end of the 1990s, 97, I think it was. And... Um, Mother Teresa writes letters to her friends over that whole period of time, and they're all letters of doubt. It's an amazing thing. 
And uh, they're full of so much, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Why have you let me down? She writes to her friends and says, God's not here. I, I, I feel so totally alone and abandoned in what I'm doing. She's consistent over 40 years. When she died, her order tried to destroy the letters, and the Vatican stepped in and said, you can't, because they are letters of someone we might make a saint. And the Vatican insisted they were kept, and now they're published. You, you can go online and order them from Amazon tonight, you know. And they're brilliant letters, because actually, now they're published. Do you know what they say about them? They say, these letters are an extraordinary example of faith. Whereas you, if you read them, they're letters about someone who doesn't feel God's presence at all. And yet, that's why they're extraordinary letters of faith. Because in spite of her doubts and her fears and her questions and her not knowings, Teresa committed herself to a course of action and delivered on it. And changed the world and changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people. And the world remembers her as a great person of faith because what is faith? Is it the absence of doubt? No, it's the presence of doubt and questioning, but a determination or a decision to live one way. It's like that, trust me, this is true, about being married. I've been married to Cornelia, who's not here tonight, for oh, 35 years, I think, we've been married. 35 years. Do you think I've ever not... Do you think I've never had the thought in that 35 years? I'm not sure I married the right one here. <laughs> Do you think she's not thought that about me? Do you think she's not thought, oh, I should have done what my mother said and married someone a little bit more decent or whatever? You you see, anything you do in life, you doubt. But if I'd have given up on my marriage, or more particularly, if Cornelia had given up on me, which I think she should have possibly done a few times, um, at least that's what she told me she was thinking about doing. (laughs) You know, it's kind of, do 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 you see what I mean? You're all looking at me so seriously as though none of this ever impacts you guys and that your lives run smooth, which I know they don't. Because I know you're filled with doubts and questions in your relationships and everything else. By the way, uh, let me t- tell you, none of you will ever come and ask me if I'll marry you, you know, in a service after I've told you, told you this. I quite often, when a couple come to see me about marriage, um, I, I, and there's two things I say to them, actually. I, I say, do you know... You're besotted with one another. You're totally in love. You know, you're drunk on love. What's the point in me saying too much about, you know, you're going to have struggled communicating, you know. It's going to be a tough ride communicating because you're just sitting there going, but we're in love and we're young and you're a silly old fool of an old man who probably has suffered a bad relationship. So I always say to them, so why don't you get married? And then we talk about it afterwards. When you've sobered up, sometimes sobering up takes a week, sometimes it takes six weeks, sometimes it takes six months, sometimes it takes a whole year. But sure enough, in the end, you sober up. Is that true? There you go. (laughs) Evidence from a married woman. (laughs) You always get married drunk on love and you always sober up sometime afterwards. And that's when you should really have the conversation about communication. But anyway, one of the things I say to couples who come and talk to me about getting married sometimes, you know, it's like I just talk to them about what we talk about, is I say, I look at, it depends, you know. Sometimes I look at them and I say, um, if it was Sam and Michael, I'm just picking on Michael as he's not here, I say, I say Sam, what are you going to do the first time you fall desperately in love with someone else and wish you were married to them instead of him? And I've sat with couples who just go, ah! 
Do you know why they do that? Because they're not being honest. Because they've already had that thought, actually. Life is full of doubts. And the only way to make your life through the years you've been given, and some of you may be given the gift of many, 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 many years from here, is to determine how to live and live that way, regardless, in the end, of how you feel or don't feel on any given day, week, month or year. James would like to ask something, which is good. Is it, um, go on, James, ask a question. Uh, so that was my question. Um, the context was I was having a discussion with a good brother friend on Facebook, and uh, he was saying that he believes more, um, as a Muslim, he believes more um, in Christian um, theology than I do, and I was just an agnostic with Christian trappings. And so my, my I think I think the t- term Christian's a funny one. Actually, you probably didn't expect me to say that. But you know, the term Christian was never used by Jesus, so he never asked anyone to be a Christian one way or the other. In fact, the term Christian only ever occurs in the whole of the Bible three times. Do you know that? Every single time it occurs in the New Testament, it's used as a as a term of disdain. The followers of Jesus called themselves the followers of the way. Jesus was the way. And his enemies, their detractors, the people that laughed at them, said, hey, you're Christians. So actually, in the end, the question is, are you, James, am I a follower of Jesus? Uh, Peter followed Jesus. James followed Jesus. Thomas followed Jesus. John followed Jesus. And actually, the truth is, they had loads of questions along the way, and they as often didn't get it as got it. So the test of following Jesus isn't whether you believe all the right stuff in the right order, it's whether you choose to actually live your life his way. And in the West, we're fascinated by believing the right stuff, because we've turned Christianity into a mindset, haven't we? Do you know? It's stuff I believe in. If I believe all the right stuff in the right order, I must be a follower of Jesus. No, Jesus said, follow me. Do you remember that? He kept saying it. And do you know what he meant when he said, follow me? He didn't say, you know, get behind me on Twitter. Do you know? That's I need more followers. What he was talking about was this, actually following him. Actually following him. Whereas we say, Oh no, Jesus, look, what I'd really like to do is reach a place where I believe these things. And Jesus said, no, I'm asking you to follow me. Actually follow me. Leave behind stuff and come with me. And all I'd say to you is simply this, that as I've followed Jesus, I've, um, I've learned a lot about him. And I've, and I've come to some beliefs that are born out of the experience of actually living life. If you were to ask me, uh, I'm going on holiday on Tuesday, um, which is nice. I'm not around next uh, Sunday, unfortunately, but I'm here back next week. But um, am I scared of tomorrow? 
actually tomorrow, Monday, when I'm working, yeah, I'm scared of tomorrow morning. There's some things I've got to do. I'm scared of tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow evening as well. I've got some big things, big issues. I am trying to follow Jesus. That involves me in a whole load of things that otherwise I'd just shy away from. Do you see? We're talking about, I was talking about the library earlier and literacy rates here. If I didn't follow Jesus, why would I care who can read and who can't? Well, I'd kind of care, and I'd kind of sit down a pub with my friends over a nice glass of wine talking about how terrible it is that there are people in our community that can't read. Whereas, because I follow Jesus, I feel that I'm called to do my little bit with you guys in making a difference to that. Because Jesus came to set the prisoners free, and the prisoners are those who are locked out of learning and the prisoners are those who are locked out socially and the prisoners are those who are locked out spiritually. That inclusion isn't just our favourite bit of inclusion on our subject. Inclusion is inclusion on all those subjects we've never thought about. One last question and then we should finish. Is there another question from anyone? You're also bored with what I'm saying. You kind of want me to stop. Any more questions? You can ask anything you like. (laughs) Do you need free membership at the gym, James? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So let me say this if there, there are no more questions. This church should always exist in order to create the space for you to ask questions. Jesus went into the wilderness and he wrestled with stuff. So, here's the thing I'll leave you with. How long did Jesus go to the wilderness for? 40 days and 40 nights. He went to the desert And he sat there and he wrestled with his doubts and his questions for 40 days and 40 nights. You may have heard me say before that we don't like doing that. If we get doubts and questions, we like to blast them away with a bit of our favorite music. Turn on the telly loud. You know, have a drink, chill out, enjoy ourselves, get some entertainment and some fun happening soon. People who are addicted to blotting out the questions and never sitting in the desert, will never find answers. So the question is, where's your desert? And when your desert arises, metaphorically, don't rush out of it. Learn that even in the agony of sitting in it, perhaps especially in the agony of sitting in it, there are great many deep things that you will learn that will equip you don't despise the desert learn from the desert god bless you all of you